Hi, Pearl. You don't have to raise your voice. You pay you! I can give you half. You pay little bitch. Hey, don't talk to me like that, okay? I'm getting this crap. Look, I, I thought I was clear in my email that I needed a couple weeks. I worked too hard. Can I just get two more weeks? I got my money. You need to relax. You're an asshole. Uh-uh. I got my money, bitch. Hey, don't call me bitch. I'm a grown man. I was listening to your guys' show the other day where you talked about Verhoeven for a half hour, and I was like, why the fuck have I not been on this show? <laughs> half my life is spent talking about Verhoeven. <laughs> he, is a, he is a genius. Yeah. He, he is a I prophet. I was the guy banging, I was banging the drum on Showgirls like 10 years ago, telling people like, no, no. That thing yeah. is a, a satire of fascistic culture and what it would have been like if the Nazis had won the war. Like, <laughs> And finally now I'm seeing that come around. There's a couple books reevaluating Showgirls, which is uh, pretty exciting. Adam, I hate it when people say Showgirls yeah. is a movie that's so bad it's good. Like, no, Showgirls is a great movie because he just essentially what he does, he does for sex in Showgirls what he does for violence in RoboCop and Total Recall. He just pushes it to such an absurd, extreme degree, but like to the same end of portraying our absurd fascist culture. Oh, 100%. You can tell, and it's funny too, because I, I know some people who were involved in the movie and they're like, no, no, you're wrong. He was partying. He was being like, you know, a uh, gross Hollywood guy. I go, it doesn't matter. Like the satire is like traumatized into his muscles. Like he <laughs> is walking fascist satire. Like he can't help himself. We were saying the same thing about John Carpenter. It's like John Carpenter, I don't know how conscious he is of what he's doing, but it's just there no matter what. Maybe it's accidental. It's like someone getting hit in the head who can remember, you know, every date of the calendar for 100 years. Uh, but, yeah, that's Fairhoven for sure. Vibrating yeah, at, a, at a high uh, frequency. And it, yeah, and probably not even aware of it. Just like as an antenna that's up okay. that no one else has. Yeah. Okay, we're rolling. Let's kick things off. Uh, hello, everybody. It's Chapo. We're back again. It's me, Will, and I've got Matt and Amber joining me here today. But that is not all. We've got a very special guest for you. I am pleased to welcome to the show the former coordinator of Falconry for Saturday Night Live, Adam McKay. Adam, how's it going? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. So I guess my, my first question for you is having a falcon at your wrist, the wind in your hair, on the open step, truly best in life? <laughs> I only got to experience it for two years, and yes, it is. I can say that. Empirically, it is the best. Uh, I, I see this is from a profile in, uh, in W Magazine. It says that you, uh, you, know, you became officially the head coordinator of Falconry for Saturday Night Live. But it's also said that you, uh, your colleagues started to get annoyed by this. So I guess I'm wondering is, what do they have against falconry? Why do they resent these beautiful birds? <laughs> it's so funny. I thought, like, I, I said, can I name my own credit? And they let me do it. And I was like, all right, I'm coordinator of falconry. And, like, veterans of the crew were, like, cornering me, being like, you know what? That's not fucking funny. 
we work hard for our credits. And I was like, Jesus, now I'm like the enemy of the working man. And I was like, yeah, I held firm on it, though. I was like, you know what? It's Saturday Night Live. I'm going to do it. And so they like buried the credit at the end of the credits. And I think it ran like twice. And someone sent me a frame grab of it. But yes, technically for two years, I was the coordinator of Falconry. I mean, did, did they resent when you sort of monopolized the craft service table for just like a, you know, sort of a uh, panoply of these beautiful raptors and their little like their blinders on, you know, you're just like, no, no food. Don't look at the raptor. Don't look at my falcon, please. Yeah. And I had like a buffet of like uh, rabbit fillets and uh, Martin meat and, <laughs> you know, I, I, to make sure my beautiful, like you said, coterie of raptors were fed and were happy. There were about seven of them. Three times they got loose in the studio and attacked uh, people with big hair. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of difficulty and resentment. But I'm like, you know what? You can't run a world-class organization without a, I don't know what the plural is for falcons, actually, which is terrible given my past title, but I'm going to say a fist of falcons uh, <laughs> on hand at all times. So they, they learned to deal with it. Well, I mean, the results speak for themselves, frankly, in terms of the sketches. I mean, I don't want to kiss your ass too much, but uh, I am a, I'm a Saturday Night Live. I am the Saturday Night Live lore master of the show. I've been watching it since I was a kid, and I've, I don't think I've missed an episode since I was like 10. Uh, and... The, your sketches are, in my opinion, the Pantheon best ones. In fact, uh, I have a test I give to my friends sometimes, and I'm very uh, eager to be able to ask it of you. Are you a high C and turkey guy or an orange Julius guy? Oh, my God. That is deep. <laughs> that is deep. <laughs> Matt wow. don't miss. Matt does not miss when it comes to SNL. I mean, that is, yeah, high C in Turkey. I wrote that with Norm Hiscock, who is the former head writer for uh, Kids in the Hall. He and I wrote a lot of those sketches uh, that were ones that were not very popular with Lorne, but we get enough laughs at the table that, like, shit, we got to take this to dress. And they would occasionally get through. And I think eventually, like, after two years of Norm and I writing a lot of those kinds of sketches, like high C in Turkey, we wrote another one where... Two corporate VPs told one of their employees they didn't like his personality and they wanted him to assume an, uh, an English accent and talk about the Great War a lot and ride a big <laughs> wheel. And they kept fucking with his personality. But that was his cock and I would write those. And eventually one of the producers came to us and said, stop writing those sketches. <laughs> oh, that's amazing to hear. They literally said, this is too good. What are you doing? This is too they, actually funny. They, they were not enjoyed. I don't think good was what they were thinking, but they were like, we don't want to contend with them. We don't want to build sets for them. Stop writing these damn sketches because we were getting them through the read through. And we had one that was uh, Will Ferrell knocks on Danny Aiello's door at like three in the morning. And we aged Ferrell up to match Aiello's age. And it was him with uh saying with a high school yearbook, just saying high school was great, wasn't it? And it turns out he's an old high school friend who's never gotten over high school and went and bought the old abandoned high school and is trying to get everyone that he went to school with to go back to the school and walk around like school's still going on. And you have never seen 300 people put out willful silence. Like <laughs> They wanted to get a message across. and dark and screwed up. And the only guy he got was Kector was Dukes, this guy who had had a head injury. So they ended 
with Farrell and Dukes looking out a broken window with like, you know, eight six seven five three oh nine. Jenny, you know, I got her number <laughs> playing. Uh, yeah, those were not well received. Well, I gotta say, girls I mean, before swine. As far as the the Orange Julius sketch goes, I mean, you, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a hilarious sketch. But in that sketch, you did manage to wrangle one of the most genuinely heartfelt and emotionally affecting performances out of Sylvester Stallone that Absolutely. I've ever seen. <laughs> People talk about him in Copland. I'm sorry, he's way better yeah. at the Orange Julius sketch. It's it's just it's and like when he triumphs at the end of it. It was like oh, tears in my eyes. <laughs> How does that sound, Leon? Would you like to sell Orange Juliuses in Germany? Did coming off the audience, Judas. And the dream come true. I mean, Sylvester Stallone, a, he a little bit broke my heart. I read some article after he hosted because he was a nice guy. And, you know, it's Sylvester Stallone. And and then like a year no, after he hosted, I'm shocked. I read some <laughs> A year after he hosted, there was an article about how his whole like $100 million art collection, he had been scammed. <laughs> and the art collection was actually only no. worth like ten million dollars, and they showed pictures of the art, and it was like horrible. <laughs> and I was like, oh. I literally said after he hosted, like, does he have someone looking out for him? Like, I, I was like worried about him. Oh, that's amazing! That's wow. exactly who you think that he is. It's almost too on the nose. Yeah, no, the the, the, yeah. Art, the art scamos must have seen him coming a mile away. Oh, yeah. The yeah, way he says, God damn, he was funny. He was so sketch. good. The way he says, uh, a lot of them got sick. Some of them died. Just not <laughs> not having the confidence to not hit that, even though that's the punchline. Genius. Genius. Yeah, I agree. So, Adam, um, we we're, we can talk uh, SNL. Um, uh, we got some some more SNL heaters coming for you. But I just wanted to begin by by saying that. Uh, I recently, uh, uh, Catherine, my, my, my girlfriend and I, we recently just watched uh, The Other Guys, which um, holds up, still holds up, still good. And I was just, it was, it was funny because, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, the end credits basically morph into this kind of uh, high energy infographic about uh, various financial crimes and the, uh, you know, leading up to the Great Recession set to Rage Against the Machines cover of Maggie's Farm. And it seemed to me like... That was like like that that end credits there really sort of like led you into this path of like doing movies about things that are that, that we like to laugh at to things that we love to be mad at. And I'm just wondering like was there a sort of road to Damascus moment for you? Like what what like shifted your film output to like these more kind of like poli- outwardly political films? Like so in other words, what about the other guys radicalized you? Yeah, I mean I think it's I'm, I'm sure, you know, we've all been living in this country together for quite a while and for a long time i was trying to do stuff through comedy you know we were doing like anchorman was about sexism and you know the news becoming pure entertainment and we always had like something like at least a little bit of a baseline that we were playing behind the absurd comedy that was a little bit about something and I think with the other guys, it was just the financial collapse hit. My dad lost his house. The crimes were so flagrant. There was never any comeuppance. And I thought you can't do a comedy about drug smugglers. Like, you just can't. That's not what the problem is. So we tried to do this kind of slightly absurdist comedy that was also like an allegory for the whole financial collapse. And we put all this work into it and really tried to craft the story and then the movie came out and like no one cared, <laughs> like no one even noticed that we had done this. So when I was putting the credits in the end, I just go, fuck it, just make it naked. Like at least the credits will do it. And 
So yeah, a bunch of people responded to it like, why did you do those credits in the end? I was like, no, the whole movie is about how the cops who are chasing drug dealers and destroying cars and car crashes are like a joke. And the guy who's actually like looking at bureaucratic paperwork is the one who's like really finding where the real crimes are. And like Wahlberg's characters are always looking for drug smugglers and they ignore their union. And it turns out in the end that the union was being scammed. So yeah, that was kind of the first one where I started kind of being a little more overt that I realized kind of this, you know, comedy mixed with some commentary wasn't enough. The world was just getting crazier. Well, yeah, I mean, on that on that tip, on that transition. Oh, wait, first of all, I thought this was true. And then I looked it up on my phone just to make sure. But do you know what a flock of falcons is called? A cast like the cast oh, of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> that is good. I like that. It's nice, right? Yeah, they've all got their parts. I, I like some of them, uh, some of them carry sketches. Some of them are more background players. Some of them, you know, do more character work. You get the idea. Um, do you guys yeah, know about- what a collection of Catholic, uh, more than five Catholic cardinals are called? Um, a registry list. Yeah, a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> a cantaloupe. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, you actually got profiled by my buddy and my editor uh, at Jacobin, Connor Kilpatrick. Um, it was a it was a great profile. I remember that he was he was awesome. Yeah, yeah, he's great. He mentioned how divided the reviews were about Vice, even though everyone had to admit the performances were amazing. Um, and you had this quote where you said, uh, "I just had this fractured feeling that the press was mad that I was stepping in their backyard." Um, we would know nothing about that, obviously. But, <laughs> but first of all, it's funny they got their hackles up about that and not like Anchorman 2. But I, I couldn't really pinpoint the animosity to that movie. I couldn't figure out, is the traditional media like territorial or like proprietary about like political content? Because it's not like they were talking about Cheney. They were maybe trying to forget that it happened. Um, do you think maybe it's because you've primarily worked in comedy and they're like, be funny, be funny, funny man. Uh, what do you think accounts for the reception? I think there was some of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and by the way, I'm not going to maintain it's a perfect movie. I mean, there are people I knew that I respected who weren't huge fans. I'm like, that's fair enough. But I thought some of the animosity was strange. Like we got fact checked by PolitiFact (laughs) <laughs> and their fact check was wrong. Like, it was really weird. It was like, oh, wait, no, we researched this movie for two years. We know what we're talking about. And I remember they put out a fact check on it. I was like, well, that's incorrect. That's incorrect. And I remember, like, Joe Scarborough, who was a guy who was really for the Iraq war, had, like, a right-wing movie critic on who was like, I love the movie because I love Dick Cheney. I thought he was great in it. And Scarborough <laughs> was laughing like... Yeah, you're right. Like, we could use someone competent instead of Trump now. And there was, like, this whole idea of, you know, at least Cheney was competent. And I was like, this is, this is like, out of a Verhoeven movie. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, there was some really strange kind of touchy nerves to that movie that went beyond just normal sort of, I liked the movie, I didn't like the movie, which is a whole separate discussion uh, there were some op-eds written from, like, journalists who were, like, rolling their eyes at, like, the characterization of W. Bush. And it's like, no, no, we, we researched that. We talked to people who were like, yeah, 
He was manipulated by Cheney. He was completely incompetent. That was, you know, based on real stuff. Then that was also when I realized I was kind of stepping into an America where, like, stuff is really factionalized and really ugly out there. I, I really thought there'd be more of a rallying point around, you know, thank God this story was documented. You know, there's obviously mm-hmm. great performances. We needed it to be documented. And nope, that was not the case. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder. I kind of wondered if some of it wasn't just that, like, no one has actually gone back and reconciled that period of history in their head anyway. So it's really uncomfortable to look at it, even though it was not that long ago. Yeah, I wondered that too. I think you're right a little bit with the comedy thing too. I think like the idea that the guy who did Step Brothers did this. I think a lot of people assumed it was slapdash that we hadn't done all this research. I saw people act like, oh, you know. Lynn Cheney's father. You can't just say that. I was like, no, no, we researched that. We interviewed people from her town. We looked at the police reports. Like, mm-hmm. So I think you're right. Some of the comedy thing hit in there. And then I think a lot of it was just talk about a subject no one really wants to go back over. People forget there was a lot of people supporting that war and a lot of journalists who kind of missed the boat on what was really going on. And it's not a very fun subject to go back to. I, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, we definitely got very strong reactions on both sides. Like some people like loved it. Some people hated it more than anything. Uh, it was quite an experience. Um, well, you, you mentioned like the, the research you were doing um, when you were you know writing the screenplay for it. Uh, so like in, in the course of doing that, you must have sort of imbibed all kinds of cursed knowledge about Dick Cheney and his role in shaping the presidency of uh, George W. Bush. So Considering that, like, does it drive you fucking crazy to see W rehabilitated in the way he has now, sort of as a foil for Trump? I mean, like, just today he was speaking at John Lewis's funeral, and like, like you said, there's just this this chorus of like, man, I remember when we had a competent Republican in office, and it's just like, what? But like, did, does this drive you as insane as it does me? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yes. All right, good. <laughs> I can't, I can't believe it. I mean, a million people died. You know, that war is going to end up costing $5 trillion. There's a whole generation of young men who have, like, head trauma and injuries from that war. It's, it's, it's kind of everything that's wrong with our country. We have more of, like, a, a slot machine sense of history than, you know, a narrative sense of history. It's, like, such a moment-to-moment kind of culture we've created. I wanted to ask you guys, though, this must be strange for your show, like— with everything that's happened, I was actually thinking like, oh my God, like Chapo's almost like Politico or The Hill now. Like all your opinions and everything you've been talking about is like moderate now. Like I was joking about like Jacobin is like USA Today now. Uh, <laughs> have, have you guys felt this at all? Like with what, you know, you used to be considered like extreme left wingers and it's like, no, pretty much everything you're saying we could have used right now. Well, Adam, I, I, we've we've always thought of ourselves as leaders. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I've always I've always viewed the show more as like a sort of a contemporary Mallard Fillmore, you know, just just bringing some political insight, but also some laughs. <laughs> yeah, keep it light. Well, before before I was on uh, the cast, I uh, I said uh, approvingly, this podcast is uh, Howard Stern for the post Cold War left, and. Uh, <laughs> initially people thought that that was like an insult. Um, but I, I only meant it as a compliment, but I, I don't know. I think it actually, I don't think anyone sort of, I don't think the media leads anything. I, I think, uh, they tend to sort of fill the spaces that are available to them. 
and uh, and we saw something emerging kind of during the Obama years that people realized is you know is this all there is? Um, and we always sort of had the same politics anyway. But it's like I I think the best part about our show is that it's lowbrow, and if you have if you if you want to have any kind of like cultural component to a political project, which only happens when there's some kind of politics to orient it around. You can't start with culture first. You're going to need, you're going to need catalysts. You're going to need your highbrow. You're going to need a Jacobin, your middle brow, and you're going to need, you're going to need your Chapo, your, your low brow. <laughs> well, God bless you. I'm yeah. still going to refer to you as the, the new Politico. I give that statement three jokes. Pinocchios, Adam, three <laughs> Pinocchios on that fact check. <laughs> Uh, I, I think one of the reasons that people do end up, one of the more benign reasons that people do end up venerating Bush uh, by looking backward is that, I mean, the reason that I think one of the reasons you pick Cheney as the as the focal point for the movie, trying to explicate, you know, all of the institutional rot that came to a fruition during the Bush years after nine eleven, is because he was a mastermind. You know, he was the guy behind the throne and. One of the things that makes people, especially liberals, very anxious about the current moment is that there doesn't seem to be a mastermind. I mean, there are competent people in the Trump administration, mm. like Barr, but if, it's very clear that they are all just trying to work towards the orange man. You know what I mean? Like they're trying to anticipate and 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 soothe his ego and keep him from firing him. Uh, uh, but there doesn't seem to be like there's a Cheney esque figure, uh, and I think a lot of people want that. Uh, even if he's evil, at least he would have a plan. And I'm wondering if you think that there are any, is there any Cheney-esque figure in the current moment who could be said to be guiding anything or embodying any real trends with an ability to direct them? Or are we really just sort of at a fatal stage of institutional uh, compromise of, of, of our you know, a function of government and, and uh, media and everything, and it's just everyone improvising their way into oblivion? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've always compared it to like ants. When ants go to get food, they're kind of blind and they just kind of go everywhere. And when one of the ants finds food, they start leaving scent trails for the other ants who then follow the scent trail, which is why you always see that long line of ants. By the way, I'm a co-writer on Ant-Man. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> but, um... This man loves ants. <laughs> And uh, I think that's kind of what the Republican Party is. I think they just go everywhere and they take a little bite of everything. And when something works, you kind of see the line fall into place. I think Cheney was a mastermind for a window of time. But I think ultimately he was still a product of the Republican Party. Right. Who saw the window and the opportunity and was, you know, an incredibly detail oriented guy who knew how the town worked. Uh, I definitely don't see that with Trump. I'm trying to think. I think Barr, you're right, is the closest. I think Stephen Miller is definitely pushing a lot of the immigration stuff and has very pointed ideas. I really do think Trump got the idea for seizing the CDC numbers from Putin. I really think he had like a casual call with Putin. And I'm not saying this in a shady conspiracy way. I just think he was like, I'm getting killed with these infection numbers. And Putin's like, well, take the numbers because <laughs> who else would have thought of that? Um, so, no, no, I, I don't think there's a Cheney right now. I think Cheney was like 
the safe cracker, like the really intelligent guy who understood how to undo the bureaucracy. Whereas I think Trump is what we're seeing now is more about cognitive dissonance. It's like robbing a bank by, I'm trying to think of the craziest image I can think of, like a living skeleton from like the old Sinbad movie, 69, like a ghost rider. And, and everyone is like, what the fuck am I even looking at? And meanwhile, people are just cleaning out the safe in the background because we're seeing the strangest thing we've ever seen in our life. But yeah, I don't think it's mastermind shit. I think it's scent trails. Yeah. yeah. I also think uh, the fact that Trump is insecure enough to get rid of anyone. He would resent a mastermind. He wants to be the mastermind. Whereas like W was insecure in such a way that he sort of sought protection, counsel, even leadership in a, in a, in a cabinet. Their daddy issues manifested in very different ways. Right, right. As do all of ours. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so actually though, about that, you said something before that we say on this show quite a bit, and it's that the Trump administration has not been as devastating as the two Bush administrations. And this seems pretty much like common sense. Um, but there's a kind of historical amnesia that's set in. And, and the statement like elicits so much like confusion and anger. And it's like that wasn't that long ago. And we haven't started – we haven't uh, obliterated any countries recently. I don't know – where, where do you think that that amnesia comes from? You know, I think it's I mean, that's a, a giant question, but a good one. I, I, I think clearly, you know, the last 40 years of American history can almost be characterized more so by like, you know, the foods and TV shows and movies that we've enjoyed than the political decisions as far as how people perceive the last 40 years. It's just been such a blast and so much like enjoyment and everyone just basically letting go of the reins of being like, you know, citizens. And I think with Bush, there was still, they were, they were half faking it. They were pretending that they were professionals. And if you squinted your eyes, it kind of looked like a functioning government. So, I, I, you know, I always ask people, when was the moment where it feels like the knee popped? When was the moment where, like, the back went out of alignment for you with America? And for me, it was always, it was either the Iraq War or Citizens United when I was like, oh, boy, that's not getting fixed. And, but I remember freaking out about Citizens United and having a lot of friends tell me to, like, calm down. It's not that big a deal. It's, you know, it's dirty anyway. Mm. And... And I think the fallout of the Iraq war rolled in over years. There was never kind of a reckoning moment where one day everyone said, guess what? There weren't nuclear arms or weapons of mass destruction. But yeah, I would say it, it's that the idea that this has been a continuing slow burn. And I would include Clinton in that pretty heavily, by the way. I Absolutely. would really say those Clinton years were devastating. I mean, what was done, the deregulation, the... Oh, yeah criminalization of the the poor and people of color and, uh, you know, deregulating the media and just on and on. There's some really terrible stuff happened during those years. But this it's been this slow burn off kind of this peak of crazy wealth. And uh, but I still think people see things through that lens of celebrity and individuals rather than 
really, this is a 40-year story in my mind, not really about Trump. Trump's celebrity is a suck hole. It's not, it's not the story. That speaks to uh, something that I've noticed in uh, all of your films, really, but especially the, the more recent, more politically charged ones, is this through line of frustration with the way that popular culture is uh, plays a role in obfuscating and distracting by, by its very vapidity. Uh, and, and that, you know, that our ability to reckon with the world that's being made around us is being compromised by the fact that our mediated experience of that reality is so trifling and so commercial and, uh, and easily distracted and, and based on things like celebrity and, 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 and spectacle. Uh, but you know, you also work in Hollywood making movies, you know? (laughs) So do you feel that like, do you, do you see that there is a way through that in Karen Cockatrice? Do you think that there is a way to to redirect people's like energies through media? Or would you say at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if it works or not. It's still your moral responsibility as an artist to say what is on your mind and in your heart in a given moment? Yeah, it's a tricky line because you're right. You know, I'm living in Los Angeles where, you know, billions of dollars of giant media being churned out. I mean, for instance, right now I'm in the set of a commercial I'm shooting for Exxon. And <laughs> at the same <laughs> Get that money. Get that money. I mean, you got to, you know, on one hand, I care about mankind, but on the other hand, you got to get paid. And, uh, <laughs> now, you know, I, it's the book that it was a surprising book that I read uh, like a year ago was that Sapiens. Have you guys read that? No, I haven't heard of it. It's it's pretty it's the Yuval Harari book, and it's about just basically the history of Homo sapiens. A lot of it's really good, but there's one part that was like jaw dropping for me where he singles out that the single thing that separates us from other upright monkeys was our ability. The reason we dominated the other upright monkeys was that we were able to use storytelling and mythology to mobilize more than there's some kind of set number in nature. It's like 185 is the number at which animals start to disperse and fight against each other. But mankind was able to come up with storytelling and mythology to unite millions of Homo sapiens for one purpose. And he was talking about how they found fossil records where like Homo sapiens were battling Neanderthals and they would lose like two battles. But the third battle, they would come back with six times the numbers and Neanderthals were like stuck at that number. I can't remember exactly what it is. And I read this and it just blew me away because... I do think what's happened is the common mythology was pretty consciously manipulated and changed. And I do think the story of this whole era that we're living in is about information warfare. I think it's about advertising, marketing, coercive, you know, manipulation. And so, yeah, anyway, boy, that was a long-winded answer. I apologize for that. Uh, no, I like that. That was good. I like, I like that. Mark's, uh, Mark's called man the gr- most gregarious animal, and this guy says that uh, we are the lying bullshit monkeys. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I, lying bullshit monkeys, by the way, you can name your autobiography, your band, <laughs> uh, your boat, anything you want, you can name that. I'm on board. Well, uh, Adam, you talked about like uh, you said, like in, in terms of like the power of stories and myth make. Yeah. And the powers of stories and, and myth making to uh, sort of unite people and, and, and you form a, a sort of broader 
cultures around it. And then also that like so much of our, our the history of the last 40 years, people's the average person's understanding of it is basically what they've seen in movies about it. So, I mean, just in thinking about uh, Vice and the Iraq War and George Bush and this weird amnesia about his two terms in office is like, what, what do you think accounts for the fact that there are so few memorable or even good American movies made about the Iraq War? Because like, there, there was, like, if you think about all the classic Vietnam War movies, like the big three, like Platoon, Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, they were all made within about 10 years of that war ending. And I guess the Iraq War is like technically ended in what, like 2011, but I mean, it's still kind of going on. But I, I guess what I'm saying is like none of the movies made about it while it was going on or immediately after it ceased to be like a really vivid, controversial thing in the American imagination, uh, like they, they've none of them have really stuck around or like made any big of an impact. And I'm just wondering what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, that was why I made the movie. I I always joked with my editor when we were slaving away on a very difficult edit for that movie. We were like, we're the janitors who have to put the sawdust on the throw up. Like (laughs) this is not, this is not a glory job. Like we could have gone and done, you know, a Marvel movie. We could have gone to, you know, shot a movie in like off the Amalfi coast, but we just felt like, yeah, it was like, why like this story, no one's ever gotten it down in a film. The closest is W, which I would say he did in W. But other than that, the great Iraq war movie is probably, I'm trying to think, uh, there's not many that leap to mind. Oh, there, uh, what's the one uh, Catherine Bigelow did, uh, the one best picture? Oh, Locker? Locker? Right, really... yeah. Locker, yeah. Yeah. But that's more of a character piece. That's more about like what the adrenaline rush PTSD of war does to an individual than it is about Iraq. It's a great movie. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the joke I've been saying, you know, we've been joking about lately is what's the epitaph for America? And, you know, in the last 20 years, especially, I, I would say it's the customer is always right. And it's hmm. just people do not want unpleasant, you know, experiences. People do not want like look at the news. Like I had a friend who was a news producer and she told me back in the eighties when all the news consultants came in and talked about how you have to change the colors on the set. So they're more pleasant. You have to change hairstyles. And that's happened with every tier of our society. I mean, I always think it's strange how you hear people say brand and content. Like those are boardroom terms, but mm-hmm. they've become mainstreams. Yeah. Like I, I've started saying to friends lately, like, hey man, what's up? How's your quarterly earnings? Like, <laughs> I just want to like, it's like corporate terms became like hip hop terms. So I think when it comes to the Iraq war, it's bad news. It's like legitimately bad news. That's yeah, a bummer. Who wants to take that on? Yeah. yeah no, nobody yeah. wants to when be reveling about, like, in, a, like, in a bummer. Tom, they want to rather watch Tom Hanks win World War II again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or forget about it. Or just move on and be like, I had people on Twitter when Vice came out. I had several people. I was incredible to see. And they weren't fake accounts saying, like, that happened so long ago. Why would you talk about that? Why would you make a movie about it? Yeah. I was like, that did not happen long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping in mind, too, that we will still make however many World War II movies every few years, uh, which happened before then. Um, well, that was that was fun. That was that fun. Was for fun. Us. Yeah. We I don't, I, the do Nazis. you guys get uncomfortable, though? I don't like the World War II stuff where they I don't know if the director changes it, where they're fighting Nazis. Like, 
I'm part of a neo-Nazi group because I'm a patriot. And like, <laughs> I want someone to make a World War II movie where they're not fighting Nazis. Watch uh, Cross of Iron. Them. Cross of Iron by Sam Peckinpah. <laughs> that's, that's the film for you, my friend. What is, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's so good. It's oh, literally yeah. like, it's a Vietnam War allegory, but it's, it's, it's James Coburn and is like, uh, is basically like the Eastern Front, like Nazi frontline trooper fighting the Soviets. And it like, the movie essentially makes you root for him. <laughs> but it's all but it's done but it's done in a way that's intentionally supposed to be really unpleasant and uncomfortable because it's peck and pop but uh, oh. check check out oh, cross of iron yeah I love it well uh, you said that like people don't want bad news and i think that that's true to some degree but the success of something like you know the big short like the 2008 financial crisis was a, a fucking bummer um but explaining you know uh the, the housing market, um, you did that in a way that one, like didn't talk down to people. Um, and two, I guess made it entertaining and palatable. I mean, like it did prove that people actually are interested in the world around them. My, many of my family members who just have checked out of politics since the nineties, since Clinton sort of obliterated all of these, you know, you know, industrial towns and, and, you know, what was left of our flimsy welfare state. They avoid this stuff entirely because their sense is that like, it's out of my hands. I can't understand it. It's too complicated. It seems like you go into this sort of thing, trying to show people that it's not as complicated as the like intentional obscuritism as of the elites totally. would, would lead you to believe. And that makes bad news feel like information that you can maybe do something with, right? Well, I, I, you, I think you pointed at like a really interesting question, which is, you know, you can work at these movie studios or TV networks or, you know, friends I've had to work in the news and they'll hire consultants, they'll do comps, they'll do market tests, they'll get test audience, market groups, you know, focus groups are like, I don't think Americans realize how much focus groups are controlling our reality. But the question is, like, are the results they're giving you what they just want? So, like, when they say Americans don't want bad news, like, you're right. Like, with The Big Short. Now, I think why people like that movie was that it empowered them. It kind of said, here's real information. It was playful. There's some funny stuff in it. And then there was some grim stuff in it. But it, it sort of said to the audience, you can handle this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to put it in crass terms, like the movie made a, a bunch of money at the box office, which should show that that can be profitable. But you're right. Like this customer is always right stuff is I don't think it's true. I don't think that Americans are all consumers that want to be babied. But I think that's the way they're being treated. Mm -hmm. And that difference between those two statements is really interesting. Right. I mean, I I mean, on this show. Someone once said something to me that you'd be funny about terrible things and people really respond to it. And they were like, well, previously, the relationship to politics is that you have to be sort of the only experience you're allowed to have about injustice or exploitation or, you know, great criminal acts of the elites. It's just like pure rage. And obviously, you cannot do that forever. So the ability to laugh at things that make you angry is kind of the separate is, is kind of like the ingredient in something like, like the big short. And that's why I don't know something like, right. yeah, something like having, you know, the tongue in cheek, like Selena Gomez in there or whatever. It's like, okay, 
This it's is perspective. Yeah, it, yeah. It's power it, it, because you're not being overtaken by the moment. I mean, and quite honestly, that was harder with Vice. I mean, Vice yeah. was so upsetting and dark that we kept having to remember that we could be funny because it was so grim. You're really looking at like the history of the decline of America and all these like moments where we just kept going down. And that's why the next movie I'm doing is much more of an overt comedy. Uh, I'm just like, after Vice, like I need to laugh a little bit. Right. Again, like we're on a podcast, which is a weird conversational thing where it's comedic and political, but we do try to balance like what we call the vegetables and the dessert of the programming. Cause we don't want to be like totally dry and like purely didactic, but we don't want to like issue political commentary to just lean on jokes. When you're working with stuff that sort of runs the gamut from like character driven, pure comedy to like very serious political biography, like how do you write a balance between entertaining and informative and how do you decide what that tone is going to be? I mean, one of my favorite things we've done recently, and this is more me as a producer and I directed the pilot, but Succession is a show I really like because for years I was like, how do you point out these, you know, media oligarchs? How do you get into this world and show what's really going on there? And how do you do it without it becoming wealth porn? And we're really lucky in that case because we had a collaborator, Jesse Armstrong, who's just brilliant, has written some of my favorite movies and shows. and Peep show, peep show all time. Mm-hmm. Oh, Peep Show's the best. And Amazing. and In the Loop is incredible. And uh, I think, and it's not Jesse Armstrong, but it's Armando Iannucci. I think Death of Stalin is like the movie for this time. I've watched we it We love Iannucci. Right, because it's, oh, it's, not about po- it's not about politics. It's about the office politics of politics. Yep. And so Succession was a show like when we really started finding the way like, oh, wait a minute, we're going to shoot this like Foxcatcher we're going to give it that kind of dark weight. We're going to score it like it's a, you know, a film adaptation of King Lear with Nick Bertel. <laughs> yet at the same time, it can still be funny. And I got really excited when we found that, when that sauce was done. And I was like, oh, this doesn't make me want to spit it out. And uh, so that, that was a really exciting one. But that's kind of constantly what we're on the hunt for. I mean, this next one I'm doing is more of a dark comedy. I would put it more in kind of that wag the dog network kind of zone, even if it's half as good as those movies, I'd be delighted. But um, that's the constant balance. I feel like you guys do it really well. I mean, like I said, you're able to talk about Verhoeven, you're able to, you know, talk about Kanye West. But I, but I also think it proves that the, the pop, the entertainment, the sports, all of it is connected way more than we think. And I think, once again, that boardroom culture has segmented these different subjects way too much. And... Uh, anytime I hear a show like your guys where you're letting them bleed into each other, it's immediately a relief. Well, Adam, when you're like, you're talking about, you know, succession and we've talked about big short and vice, but like there's like, there's a whole host of uh, projects that you're working on, either writing and directing or producing. Like there is, uh, you're working on a, a Theranos Elizabeth Holmes thing. You're working on a, a podcast about um, the Epstein case and particularly the, the victims of him who are trying to seek justice. And by the way, you'll be hearing from our attorney and true Anon's attorney. We're joining actually a <laughs> class action lawsuit against you for horning in on our fucking, uh, our racket here. No, but I mean, I guess like, you look at all of these stories and they're basically in one way or the other about like the complete failure of the people in charge, like the complete venality and, and, and just like repellent nature of the elites and like their failure to not just do their job, but like be anything, be anything approaching human. 
And I'm wondering, like, do you see, like, in all these projects you're choosing, like, what do you think is, like, the thread that ties together, like, all of these kind of, like, the, these failures and crimes and, like, just truly grotesque uh, behavior of, of the rich and powerful? Well, I think we talked about some of the threads, like information warfare, marketing, manipulation. I think another one maybe we haven't talked about. I just read that David Halberstam book, The uh, Best and the Brightest. Ah, uh, yeah. Right. And it's... Oh, such a good book. And it's amazing to see it pop up way back in the early 60s is careerism, I think, is another big part of this, where you just look at your own ladder of ascension and Cheney's the ultimate careerist. I mean, that was something I really saw with him. Uh, And with all these stories, you know, yeah, like once we put out the big short, we became kind of known as the production company you call if you want to do stuff like that. And Fortunately, there's a lot of really talented people doing cool stuff. So we ended up developing a bunch of things. But, you know, Theranos is a perfect example. Like she followed, uh, Holmes followed a careerist ladder that was very clearly laid out for her. I mean, all those those tech CEOs basically told her what the ladder was. You know, she was mentored by Larry Ellison and... Uh, and it was like, fake it till you make it, fake it till the tech catches up. Well, what no one mentioned to her was you don't do that when you're doing medical treatments. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yet, you know, there's footage of her being fawned over by Bill Clinton at some Clinton initiative or something like, you know, you're a you're an entrepreneur. You're what's best about this country It's like, no, she's completely empty. There's no there there. But. I also ended up feeling a little bad for her because she was like a young person who kind of just did what was told. Like all her mentors said, do this. Yeah. And uh, she was and totally so, yeah, rewarded. I yeah. I, I mean, she was worth, God, what was it? $10 billion at one point. And uh, so I think it's a good common thread with all these stories we're working on. It's interesting. I'm doing a, another podcast. Talk about like high, low that's called Death at the Wing, and it's about that rash of uh, rising superstars who all died in the 80s and the 90s in the NBA. You know, like Len Bias, Drazen Petrovic, Reggie Lewis, Benji. Well, the the list is like incredibly long, and we're kind of looking at why all these players died. And it's a similar thing. It's like this combination of like three or four like large forces mixed with careerism, mixed with grotesque money, and... That seems to be the recurring force in all these stories that we just keep seeing over and over again is like, you know, the Reagan revolution plus deregulation plus rewriting the mythology of American to, you know, America to you got to get yours, screw everyone else. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll figure out how to tell that story by the time we're done all these projects. So I, 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 I love the Elizabeth Holmes story. Like it, first of all, it's an amazing story of like a grift and I love every story about a grift. Um, it's an evil grift. It's not the kind of grift I actually like because I have a moral hierarchy of like hustles and grifts. Um, hers could actually kill people and it's <laughs> awful, but she's like a fascinating character. And I agree. And I, the careerism too, and how she was like rewarded and shaped by this kind of like Ivy league, you know, venture capital thing. I mean, first of all, it completely like reassures me that I am correct in being a slacker because it keeps me relatively moral because I will totally bite the hand that feeds. Um, so on that tip, I actually wanted to just go back to uh, when you made, uh, when you wrote for, for SNL, a sort of a, an animation short called Mediaopoly, 
with Robert Smigel. <laughs> it's amazing. Speaking of biting the hand that feeds. Um, and it's like kind of a schoolhouse rock parody that talks about, uh, you know, the media monopoly and also pr- pretty like early on before that had been totally internalized as like, yes, this is what's going on now, which is sad now because now no one even knows to object to it. But like, it got it got you in trouble. Like they said, you almost got fired, and then you leaked the sketch to the press so that it would get out. And Lauren was really mad at you. And uh, I gotta know, did you know when you were making that that you would get in big trouble for it, or were you trying to get in big trouble? Ah, uh, I wish I was that <laughs> with it. I was like, was I like twenty eight years old or something? I was like, Smigel's kind of a legendary writer from SNL. He came to me with that idea. We wrote it together and I was like, oh, this is awesome. And, you know, I got to give Lauren credit. He lets us, you know, there's some sketches we got on when I was there that are pretty shocking. And he really gives a ton of autonomy to the writers. Uh, I don't know how it is now, but back when I was there, I I definitely got some sketches on. I was shocked by. Um, So, yeah, we put it on. And the next morning we heard one of the big executives from GE who owned NBC back then called up Lauren. And basically it was like, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) I think Lauren was shocked. And then I had a buddy who worked in the control room. This guy, he's since retired, so I could say his name out loud, Bobby Caminiti. And Bobby Caminiti is legitimately a communist. Like, I, you know, I'm a democratic socialist. I'm definitely, you know, but I'm not a communist. This guy is really a communist. So he calls me and he says, uh, McKay, they're pulling the the TV funhouse from the rerun. They're not going to tell anyone. And I was like, holy shit. And I was like, what do you do? And then I realized, you know, from watching all the president's men or whatever, I'm like, you leak it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, so I called David Korn and I called uh, someone for the New York Daily News. I can't remember. I called a couple places. It leaked. And then I came in the next day or two days later and they're like, Lauren wants to see you. And I was like, oh, shit. And Lauren's like, I know you fucking did this, Adam. I know you're the one who leaked it. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, don't fucking bullshit me. That's a <laughs> pretty good Lauren. They want me Lauren. to fire you. Uh, six years with a guy. And he's like, they want me to fire you. I'm not going to fire you, but don't fucking do this again. And I was like, all right, bye. <laughs> so, I, so I think what we're learning here is, is, is the true villain of this story is Smigel, who set you up. Like Brendan Dassey, you poor, sweet 28-year-old boy. I had no idea. I was so innocent. And Smigel, <laughs> who is a veteran of the, the corporate-run media, wanted to take me out. I think that's what it was. It was a careerism stab in the back. It was a hit. Uh, yep. I love this takeaway. Smigel is the villain. You're exactly right. <laughs> On that tip, is there anything that you have tried to get made since you've been making movies or something you've thought of that you either... I've been told you wouldn't be able to get away with getting funding for or just didn't even try to. Yeah, there's there's there was I tried to do Garth Ennis's The Boys like years ago, like before the big short. And I wrote a uh, these two guys, man, Freddie and Hay wrote a really good script. I did a rewrite with them. I made like a previs fake trailer and it was hard rated R superhero movie. The superheroes did cocaine, had orgies. They were basically backed by corporate America to kill tons of innocent bystanders. And I took it to every single studio, financier, half studio, like literally like 18 places. 
and did the whole dog and pony show. And at the very end, every single place was like, no. I'd never experienced that before. Even Anchorman, everyone said no, but one place, DreamWorks, was like, we'll develop it with you. But in this case, like, everyone said no. That, that's the biggest no I've ever gotten. And then, of course, like, three years later, Logan comes out, rated R superhero, and that's it. It's off to the races. And then they turned it into a TV show. So... um that was one of the crazier ones. We have a Lee Atwater script that Jesse Armstrong wrote that's really, really good. We've been trying to get that made, and we may finally have an angle on doing that one. Uh, let's just say the, t- uh, the, the title t- the title to that movie should just be three specific words in a row over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually kind of genius. Um, yeah, it yeah, should no, be no. called three specific <laughs> words over and over again. Um, and then the last one, we had a Todd Solon's uh, miniseries he brought us, and it involved like all oh, these man. themes of the current world. There was like a shooting, there was like all this stuff, but it was done in that Solon's way. And we were like cocky about that. We're like, we're going to sell this. And like, no one wanted it. Uh, those are ones that spring the it's, mind. It's, it's a half hour sitcom about the dad from Happiness. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that's not that far off. It was a little bit in that zone. Which maybe I was, I was a naive 46-year-old at that time. But uh, yeah. Test audiences well, needed a laugh track. Yeah. Uh, Adam, I, I know you got a, I got, got a heart out of two, but I just have, you know, I have one more, like, you know, uh, I got one more heater for you. You know, we talk about some pretty deep political shit. So, like, you know, this is, this is along those lines, you know, like of a pretty hard-hitting question here. Uh, so, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, I mean, like, those guys must smoke, like, a ton of weed to be that funny. Like, do they chief on the reg? And is it, like, must be so cool to, like, roast a blunt with them. Awesome. <laughs> I love that. You should call that the Twitter the Twitter comment question to end every segment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perfect. Uh, pot weed, uh, marijuana weed emoji, fire emoji, marijuana weed emoji. Um, I mean, they're just it's just yeah, so they're just so wild. Those, those be, guys are yeah. so they're it's so crazy. fucking fight. John C. Riley, man, he's a oh, he's he, a force. We just did a show about the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers, with him. He plays Jerry Buss. Oh, <laughs> really? So <laughs> Fuck. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we did a mini series about the formation of the Showtime Lakers, and it's really good. This guy Max Bornstein wrote it, and uh, I did the pilot. And uh, but goddamn, Riley's so good at it. Dude, Riley is like I, I he's him and Willem Dafoe are like the two best living American actors right now. John C. Riley can do anything. That guy's range is astonishing. Uh, without a doubt, I would throw Michael Keaton in there too. I can watch Michael Keaton do anything, and I'm gonna be happy. Francis McDormand too would maybe get on that list, but yeah, uh, yeah, I'm well, with that. Adam John C. Riley might be my. As long as we're continuing with the uh, the Hollywood dick sucking, I gotta say the uh, the the long bit you do with Keaton and the other guys about TLC song titles is it's so kiss. good, so uh, good. I mean, the problem with him in that movie was he. I mean, the the other bit that could have been four times longer was him doing the kind of daily briefing to his Bed Bath and Beyond crew, oh, yeah. and where yeah. he kept confusing actual crime with. I swear to God, he improvised. We threw around so much extra. That could have been 14 minutes long. Like, that guy. Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely some Hollywood dick sucking. But I think we're, we're picking good, uh, good targets. Dicks to good suck, yeah. Good dicks we're to suck. Good suck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Adam, uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And, like, before you go, could you just tell us just a little bit more about the Epstein podcast you're doing before we sue your ass for uh, stealing from us? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's with Julie Brown, you know, the reporter from the Miami. Oh, wow. Girl, yeah. Sort of yeah. Oh, wait a minute. So that means it'll be or, researched well. and have new information in it. No, thank you. 
wild speculation. That's what we do, baby. Uh, there, there unfortunately is not a wild. And boy, if there's ever a story for wild speculation, that's it. No, yeah. it, it's really good. It's this uh, Tara Palmieri. It's Julie Brown. Adam Davidson's a producer on it and is definitely buttoned up. But there's a ton of new stuff. The whole focus is like through the victims and the idea of like, fuck Epstein. But at the same time, we got to find out who the guys were that were with him that did this because they're all getting off scot-free. And it goes to some, uh, man, I mean, all of it's just as disgusting as any story ever. But it, it definitely goes to like five or six places I did not expect. There was definitely a moment where I felt like George C. Scott in Hardcore, where I'm like, I wish I had walked <laughs> in. Turn it off! Turn it off! <laughs> it's gruesome, but really, really well done. So that comes out in September, and then the Death at the Wing should come out in like November or December, I think. Well, Adam McKay, you know you're, uh, you're, you know you got a lot of talent. I'm wishing you a best of luck in this podcast thing. I think you really got something you know, here. You know what? I think you have a bright future ahead of you. Just you know, keep your nose to the grindstone. Um, you know, don't listen to the haters. <laughs> don't listen to the haters. You know. <laughs> Uh, my goal is to like get a really creepy consortium of like big money, shady foreign money and come and like buy your show and like, <laughs> make the money just like backbreakingly high and start just playing Geico commercials through your entire show. I'm going to do that. Yeah. You know I'm, what? I'll, for the, for the right the price. Lizard. Yeah. For the right yes. price, 100%. I'll be the caveman. I'll go vintage. I don't give a yeah. fuck. <laughs> I will be the hated, uh, well, the Geico you. lizard. Amber, according to my 23andMe results, I will be the caveman, okay? All right? <laughs> I don't have all this Neanderthal DNA for nothing. Um, Adam McKay, thanks so much for hanging out with yeah, us. This thanks, is really man. fun. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, way overdue. Such a pleasure. Huge fan. And uh, yeah, this was just pure enjoyment. Oh, oh cheers, Adam. Nice to hear. Thank you all so right. much. Thanks. Bye. Bye.